Well, good morning. It's a merry early Christmas to you. My name's Lee Taylor. I'm the young adult pastor here at Village 7. It's a great joy to get to be with you all, and I hope that this week will be a fun and festive week for you and your family and friends, whether in town or out of town. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning, Uh, and hopefully you've already gotten all your shopping done, right? Everyone's got all their shopping done, no more trips to any of the places to go, get some things. And, you know, maybe you're like our family and an extended family where when it comes to Christmas time, right around after Thanksgiving, you start to get the lists, right? You start to get the lists, the Christmas lists of all the things that people have asked for. And you, maybe there's some where you didn't get that list and you're starting to rack your brain. Okay, what are, we, what are we supposed to get this person? And you start to think about, well, I guess, you know, maybe they... Maybe they need some new little trinket for their car or for their home entertainment system. I don't know. Maybe they need, maybe they need a new wardrobe. We've got to get them something. What do they need? What do they need? And we use that word need as if people really need things like that, uh, that are really just wants, when in actuality, if we... Some of us were honest with ourselves, not, not me, but if some of us are honest with ourselves, there's a few people that might need a good defense attorney. <laughs> that might be what you actually need right now. And probably the ones that aren't laughing are the ones that do need a good defense attorney. <laughs> but Becky and I have a good friend who's a prosecutor in town, and, and we were talking to her, and she was telling us a story about someone that really could have benefited from a good defense attorney. Someone that really could benefit from a good defense attorney. This is a true story. And so this guy decided to defend himself in court. And he was being charged with the DUI. And so he was going de- to defend himself. And so he was prove his point. Okay, this is his moment to shine. I'm going to, you know, he's going to defend himself and ask this expert these questions. They're going to help prove his case of why he's not guilty. And it goes a little bit something like this. He says, is it true that there's corn in some alcohol? Forensic toxologist, yes, that's, that's true. There's corn in some alcohol. Okay, is it also true that the powdery substance on an airbag is also somewhat comprised of cornstarch? Okay, yes, I think that's right. So wouldn't it make complete sense that when the airbag deployed, hit my face, that I could have ingested some of the cornstarch and therefore had a higher blood alcohol level. (laughs) Needless to say, this man was guilty on all charges (laughs) and would have greatly benefited from a good defense attorney that would have said, that's not a very good case you're presenting there. I don't know if you know how this all works. But our passage today shows us that we don't just need a good defense attorney. We don't just need a good defense attorney, but a perfect high priest, not just a mediator in our earthly struggles, but an advocate in the great cosmic balance, the great cosmic struggle between a holy God and sinful humanity. We will see kind of a different layer to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And and in the first century, You know, we've kind of been putting ourselves these last several weeks in the context of what it was like to be there in the first century, to be there at Jesus' birth. 
And they weren't really thinking about all these different things. They weren't thinking about the need for a high priest in that moment. And honestly, today, we don't necessarily think about that either. Maybe some of you have never thought about this. But one of the things that I want us to see today from our text this morning is that what all people really need in this life is a good high priest. What all people really need in this life is a perfect high priest. And in looking at who Jesus is, we've been, this last several weeks, Brian specifically has been highlighting who Jesus is. And in this Advent season, we're looking at that Jesus is fully God, that Jesus is fully man. And as was just highlighted with these, with the confession, the shorter catechism, we were looking at these next several uh, sermons, Jesus' office of prophet, priest, and king, and today looking at Jesus' office of a priest. And like I said, we don't think about Jesus being a priest around Christmas. We think about Jesus being a newborn king, that he's come to earth and he's going to be this newborn king, or that he's going to come and he's going to prophetically speak to the people in his earthly ministry, so his prophetic roles. But we don't necessarily think about Jesus being a high priest. So what did it mean for Jesus to come 2,000 years ago and to become our great high priest? Well, that's a great question, and it's going to be the main thing that we're going to look at today. So three different questions that I have for us that we're going to kind of filter this through. First being, what is a priest? For some of us might think, all right, you need to back up a few steps. I don't even know what you're talking about. We're very far removed from priesthood. What is a priest? What was the role of a high priest? Secondly, why do I need a high priest? Why do we need a high priest? And thirdly, what does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with this Advent season that we're in? So first, what is a, high, what is a priest or what is a high priest? Like I said, the vast majority of us didn't grow up in the context of understanding the priesthood. Um, maybe the closest thing you can come to is, you know, Catholic or Episcopal priest or something like that. And that gets at some kind of level of mediation, but not necessarily what we're looking at here today. And on top of that, we're probably even more ignorant about what a high priest did, who he was, what did that mean. And so here's a real quick kind of crash course on the, the priestly office and the priesthood and what the high priest did, specifically in the Old Testament. The priesthood began with Aaron, who's Moses' older brother and as the first Hebrew that God appointed to be priest over Israel. And so Aaron kind of went with Moses and was kind of the mouthpiece when he spoke to Pharaoh. And God enabled Aaron to even perform miracles and have prophetic um, have a prophetic office as well, but God consecrated Aaron and his family to lead the people, to lead the priests over Israel. And the Levite tribe were going to be those that were like the, the priesthood, but the, the line of Aaron would be the high priest. And so there was only ever one high priest at a time. And you might be thinking of your Old Testament Bible knowledge. You might be thinking some of those would be, uh, you know, Aaron and Phineas and Eli. And then there was other priests throughout Scripture that we see that were not the high priests like Ezra and Ezekiel and Zechariah. And as for the duties of the high priest, they would be a mediator between the people and God. 
They were mediators between the people, of God, the people and God. And specifically, the high priest would be the one person that could go into the, the temple, into the Holy of Holies, one day a year on the Day of Atonement and sacrifice on behalf of the sins of, him, of himself and the sins of, of people to make the people right before God. If you, just a real quick update on what Hebrews is about in case you haven't read it before. Hebrews is all about Jesus. Hebrews is all about Jesus. And it talks a lot about Jesus' priestly office. And so if you have a Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen as well. You can turn to Hebrews 5. This will just give a little bit of context into what the high priest did. We're going to look at Hebrews 7 mainly, but in Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews gives us some context in what the high priest did. So Hebrews 5, 1 through 4 says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So priests were the representatives for God's people. They were mediators. They were advocates. And if we look at, just flip right over, okay, to Hebrews 7. This is where primarily we're going to camp out today. Hebrews 7, starting verse 23, we'll see that the priestly line was something that continued on and then the high priest would die and then they'd raise up another one and that they would primarily make intercession. Verse 23 of chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, being Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus, the high priest, always lives to do what? To make intercession. That's what a high priest did. The high priest would act on behalf of the people be the mouthpiece. He'd make the people right before God, not by his own righteousness, but by the sacrificial system that was in place to make intercession between God and man. And that's what we see in Jesus as well. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, all right, I'm tracking with you. I'm starting to understand what a, what a priest did, what a high priest did. So why do I need a high priest? Why do I need a high priest? We need a high priest Because in the only court that matters, the only real court that has eternal value, we are hopeless to fight our own case. We're hopeless to fight our own case. We've got no record. We've got no status. We are guilty because of our sin. This is what we see from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. He lays out the whole case of why we're in a bad why we're in bad shape we are guilty because of our sin now i'm going to have a text on the screen that is romans chapter 3 and you know here at village 7 we primarily 
almost solely use the English Standard Version, and uh, you'll see we have the message translation because this is something that was translated by Eugene Peterson, and it's more modern-day colloquialisms, and I think it's helpful to kind of just see it in a different light, maybe read it in a different way. Chapter 3, seen it before. So this is Eugene Peterson's translation of Romans chapter 3, about verses 10 through 19. He says, basically all of us whether insiders or outsiders, translating Jew or Gentile, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. Nobody knows the score, nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. Their throats are gaping graves, their tongues slick as mudslides, Every word they speak is tinged with poison. They open their mouths. They pollute the air. They race for the honor of sinner of the year. Litter the land with heartbreak and ruin. Don't know the first thing about living with others. They never give God the time of day. This makes it clear, doesn't it? That whatever is written in these scriptures is not about what God says about others, but to us to whom these scriptures were addressed in the first place. And it's clear enough, isn't it? that we're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everyone else. Kind of an interesting way to read that. Maybe you're starting to hear the ESV or, I don't know, the NIV in your mind and then balance that with what you see right there. And, and you start to just maybe see it in a different light, not in one's right, one's wrong, but I just thought it was fascinating to read it that way, that we're all in the same sinking boat with one another. The author of Hebrews highlights something quite similar just earlier in our passage. Verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest? Essentially saying, we couldn't do it on our own. (laughs) We couldn't even do it through the priesthood. We We couldn't even attain perfection through the priesthood. It was all set up through the sacrificial system, but we needed something else. We needed some kind of outside righteousness, some kind of alien righteousness. Because holiness and perfection and right standing is what is required before a holy and righteous God. And it was not attainable through the sacrificial system. And because of this, we're separated. And if our sin really is this bad, and it is, then we're going to have to take care of this. We're going to have to figure out how this is going to get taken care of. And maybe you're sitting there, rightfully so, this is a valid question, you're starting to think to yourself, you know what, I don't know if I actually buy the fact that my sin is that bad. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, I look around at humanity, I, look, I open up my news apps, and I just see there's a lot worse people out there than me. I don't think my sin's that bad. Does it really deserve death? Am I really born sinful? I'm not going to go into all of that today. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. But if you, if you really need some convincing that we're born sinful, just talk to anybody with a three-year-old, okay? <laughs> just anybody. I've got one. I'll tell you. But that's where the high priest helped. The high priest helped because they kept us connected to God through the sacrificial system. We have to have a mediator. We have to have an intercessor, an advocate, a good lawyer, Like I said at the beginning, lawyers, 
We need good lawyers. They build cases. They build cases in order to convince the jury of someone's innocence or convince the jury of why they should be let go or that why they should be free. So what was the case that was in place through the sacrificial system with high priests? We'll go a little bit something like this. Every single week, people would show up. The high priest would show up. And this is, you know, kind of reading between the lines a little bit here. Uh, but the high priest would show up and say, okay, Lord, uh, make us right before you. Is that you demand perfection. You demand, without, you know, without the shedding of blood, there cannot be the atonement for sin. And so you demand that. You demand some kind of sacrifice. And so instead of my blood or the blood of your people and the death, my death or the death of your people, will you receive this sacrifice in my place? Will you receive this sacrifice in the place of your people? And God would receive that sacrifice as payment. They would receive that sacrifice of the shedding of blood the death of that animal. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm pretty sure it's December 19th and I came for a cute little baby Jesus in a manger, not the shedding of blood for the atonement of sins. But without the incarnation, without Jesus coming, we do not have a high priest. We do not have the atonement for sins. And so that is still what we celebrate here in this Advent season. And what we really need is a high priest. And so this system was in place for centuries. Okay, the high priest would make atonement. The people would be right before God. And then this priest would die. And then another raised up. And then they would die. And then another raised up. And then they would die. And that was kind of how it went. And if I'm some of the Jews in the first century, or if, you know, in the Old Testament and even leaving up to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I might be thinking to myself, is this really working? Is this whole system in place? Am I actually being made right before God? We want certainty. Hum humans throughout all of human history have wanted certainty. And maybe, I mean, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Christians since Jesus's resurrection that have still struggled with certainty. Am I actually right before God? Am I really a Christian? Is this whole thing working right now? And maybe there's people in this room or listening right now that are still struggling with this. Am I, am I right before God? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I remember when uh, I was growing up, I Growing up in the South, and I grew up in the church, and I think it was probably around third or fourth grade that I had kind of prayed the prayer and, you know, believed everything in the Bible and stuff. And, and, but growing up in the South, uh, there is certain small towns where you pass these billboards and it would read something like, hell is real, and have like flames coming up. And I'd be like, whoa. <laughs> and uh, I see another billboard and be like, where are you going to spend eternity if you died tonight? And it'd be like heaven with these little clouds, maybe like a dove flying through. And the other side would be hell and the flames again, you know. And I remember seeing those things and just being like, oh my goodness, I don't know. And I was at a Christmas Eve service, I think around sixth grade. So this is kind of a couple of years after praying the prayer. And the pastor gets up there and they're giving kind of a gospel presentation. Says, you know, if you don't know 
if you, where you're going to spend eternity, or if you, you know, if you're not sure, you can pray this prayer. And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, what's it going to hurt, right? We can just do this again real quick. Just double down, pray it one more time, another time, just lock this thing up. Because we want certainty. We want to be sure of these different things. And it begs the question, will there direct access to God? And you got to think that question, that, that concern, that anxiety came into people's minds constantly. Will there be a final high priest? Will there be a final advocate? Will there be a final sacrifice? And that leads us to our last point. But what does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with our Advent season? What we celebrate in Advent season is that the final high priest has come. The final sacrifice has come down. The greatest plot in the history of the world is that Jesus comes down as a baby. He comes down weak and vulnerable, and he becomes our high priest. Look back again at our text in verses 24 through 27. But he, being Jesus, holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. This God would take on flesh, become one of us, become vulnerable, be susceptible to pain, to sickness, was tempted in every way yet without sin. And he was eternal and perfect. And that's what that text also highlights. This high priest, unlike every other high priest, this high priest knows no beginning and will know no end. And this high priest was perfect, holy, innocent, blameless in every way, but tempted in every way, yet without sin. We needed this high priest to be eternal and to be perfect. But secondly, how will he save us? How will this perfect high priest, how will this eternal high priest save us? And God made a way for this high priest to save us, to make us justified before a holy God. And this is the case, which is the gospel. Hear the gospel, friends. The gospel is this, that the mo and it's the most important news that you'll ever hear in the history of the world. Why Jesus came to earth as our high priest, Jesus being fully man, and he was fully God, and he was perfect, and he was eternal. This Jesus, this God-man, he lived a perfect life. And the benefit of living a perfect life, the result of a perfect life, should be eternal life with God in heaven for all eternity. But Jesus would lay down his life. And he would become sin. He would become the sin of his people. That's what happened on the cross. He would become our sin. It's this big theological word called propitiation, meaning an atoning sacrifice. And so he would become our sin on the cross. 
And then the imputed righteousness, the the, the divine transfer, the righteousness of God would get transferred to those who put their faith in him. And so we would receive his perfect record. He receives our sin. And when God, the Father, sees Jesus on the cross, he does not see his, uh, his son. He sees he punished the sin once and for all on the cross. Jesus became our sin. And it was punished, it was paid for on the cross. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, he who knew no sin, being Jesus, became sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the beautiful news of the gospel. And that is how we are made right before God. Now you might be thinking to yourself and should be thinking, well, that's not fair. <laughs> Jesus lived a perfect life. He deserves, he doesn't deserve death. And, and we don't live perfect lives. No one lives a perfect life. And, and, and we sin and we We lie, we betray what we mean every single week when we talk about the grace of the gospel here at Village 7. We talk about the grace of the gospel, the unmerited favor of God. Paul goes on to talk about that in that latter part of Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, where he talks about it's the, the unjust receiving the right record of Jesus and that Jesus being the just and the justifier. We don't deserve it. It is unjust. It is unjust because we don't deserve it, but it's also just because because Jesus paid for our sin. And so it would actually be unjust for God to punish us for what was already paid for by Jesus. You cannot punish someone for the same crime that's already been paid for. So he saves fully, he saves wholly. There's no additional need for another advocate, no additional righteousness, no no other priest, no other sacrifice. Now, when when we're up here, when we're preaching and teaching, we are taught in seminaries that you explain, you you give your point, you explain your point, and then you illustrate your point. And and I got to be honest, this was a hard one this week to say, okay, so to what can we compare Jesus' sacrifice to? How can I make, how can I put this in modern understandings? What what other examples do we see in this world that are just like Jesus' death on the cross? There's nothing like this. You can't say, oh, this one person died for this person. This one person gave their life for their country. This one person, you can't get at the magnitude of what Jesus has done. It's a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery that is soaked in grace and love. And I was talking with my daughter, Stevie, this week, and she amazes me every single week. And last past week, she said, Dad, did you know that, that Jesus is God? did you know that Jesus is God? And I was like, yeah, I, I know. And, <laughs> and she said, it's, it's magic. She said, it's magic that only God can do. And it's hard. you can't put it any better than that. There's a mystery to how Jesus' death pays for us and that it's a mystery and that it's grace and mercy. 
and that the high priest has come. The final advocate has come. The final sacrifice has come. So if we embrace, if we embrace these things, what are... I want to just see three things. What difference will this make in our lives? Three things. So if you've been taking notes, you can, you can jot a few of these things down. I think it'll be on the screen. First thing is that we'll stop trying to prove ourselves. If we really embrace that, that Jesus has come, that our final advocate has come, the final high priest has come, we will stop trying to prove ourselves. We walk around trying to make sure that everyone knows that we're worthy, making sure that we're accepted, that we're loved. We try to climb all these different ladders, whether it's in work. You're about to spend time with family this week, and you got to pull out the slideshow of why you are worthy to be who you are, or your job, or your promotion, whatever that is. Because if we're justified in the only court that matters, and we are, that we don't need to seek it out in all the little courts of life and all of our little friend groups and family members because our high priest has made a way and he has declared once and for all that you are loved. You are beloved. You are accepted. Secondly, our status as a result of Jesus being our high priest is that it abolishes guilt. Some of you guys might, this might be your biggest obstacle in your life is that you you just think, man, you don't know what I've done. I can't actually believe that what Jesus has done actually pays for what I have done. And if I had a slideshow right now that was playing everybody's worst moments on the screen, there wouldn't be enough space under the pews for us to all hide in our shame and our guilt. But, the, but Micah 7.19, God through Micah says, that God casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you believe that? We do not bear our shame and our guilt. God is casted into the sea. Third, and finally, we see the gospel must create joy. The gospel must create joy. The high priest has come, and Psalm 1611 says that at the, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. And that's what, this, that's what Jesus' death has accomplished. That's what his priestly work has accomplished is that we are entered, out, entered into his presence. When Jesus died on the cross, the, the curtain was torn in two, which was the barrier between sinful humanity and between God. And that curtain was torn in two, showing that we now have access to God, that we get to be in his presence, that we don't just have to have we don't have to have an, an intercessor or an advocate with some high priest. Jesus is our priest, and so now we have access into his presence. We have joy. What would it look like? What would this world look like if Christians were truly marked by joy? We sing joy to the world. Is there joy in our own hearts? Jesus was born in a lowly manger which most definitely smelled. It's the humblest of beginnings. But where is Jesus now? The latter part of what was read this morning, Hebrews 8.1, we have a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. A high priest at the right hand of the Father, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Pastor Dane Ortland 
kind of wisely, he articulates our posture before God like this. He says, do not minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous, in all his brightness and sufficiency. We've got nothing to prove. Our guilt is abolished and we have fullness of joy. What we really need and what we really have in Jesus Christ is a high priest. Now, some of you have never thought about these things before and if you have questions, I'd love to talk to you after the service or you can you know, send me an email this week or something like that. Find one of our pastors, one of our elders. We'd love to talk about these things because this is the most important news in the history of the world that Jesus has come like us, to make a way for us that we might spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great joy that we have because of the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his priestly office that makes a way for us, that we can know you, that we can love you, that we can be made right before you. And Lord, will you help us understand these things? These are, these are difficult things to understand, Lord God. Will you help us to make sense of these things? Will you help us to ask questions, to seek these things out, to study? And most importantly, to come to you in prayer, Lord God, that we would, that we would ask, what does it mean that you are a priest? And will you make that real to us in our own hearts, every single person in this room, people listening online, that you would make this real to us this week, that we celebrate your birth, that you have come and died so that we might live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.